All right. Well, this is our lesson on the offerings of the Old Testament. And this, this is probably one of the trickier ones in this series of lessons. This one has taken me a long time to write. Anytime you get into the prescribed offerings of the Levitical priesthood, you basically need like a master's or a Ph.D., in Levitical theology to comprehend all of it. And you, you can understand why they'd say, please send us a Messiah. Please send us a Messiah. Please send us a Messiah. Because we're going to walk through a lot of it. We're not going to go in too much detail because I was trying to figure out how to write this without putting you to sleep. Because the detail is so extensive. It's so heavy. And uh, yeah, to cover it is necessary because it's God's word. But to cover it and you not get bored and fall asleep... Now, that's another question altogether. So we've got a lot of things we've got to cover this morning. The heart of what we're doing with all of this is understanding the, the heart of God concerning tithes and offerings. Well, this is looking at the offerings of the Old Testament, the offerings prescribed under the Mosaic Law, and how does that still relate to us today? We are not of the doctrine or mindset that tithes and offerings were done away with at the cross. That's ignorant. There is the argument, well, tithes and offerings aren't mentioned much in the New Testament. Well, neither is really worship. Neither is not killing people. But that doesn't mean we have been excluded from that. If you know the heart of God, if, if you have matured from the Old Testament to the New Testament, if you have gone from grade 5 to grade 6, you don't need to go recover everything in grade 5. And the Old Testament progressing in the New Testament is an advancement. And there's a lot of stuff that doesn't need to be covered again because it was already covered under the Old Testament. The New Testament is built upon the foundation of the Old Testament. It isn't an erasing and starting from scratch. N neither did God himself get saved at the cross. We got saved at the cross, and so we have to understand how these things work. It's called hermeneutics and letting the Bible interpret itself. Amen. So let's jump into this lesson because we have four and a half pages to cover. One of the obvious patterns demonstrated in the Mosaic Law was God legislate, uh, legislating pre-existing worship to fit his desire. And what we mean by that was a lot of these offerings that we're going to look at this morning, they were before the law. We covered that in the first, uh, the first lesson on the first three offerings of the Bible, from the offering of Cain and Abel to the offering of Abraham to the offering of the other patriarchs. And we see that one of the things we're going to see in the Mosaic Law is the Israelites were already doing this, but the law comes along and God says, all right, this is how I want it done. Abraham instituted the tithe, but this is how I want you to tithe. Cain and Abel instituted offerings, but this is how I want offerings given. So you, you understand with God, he has that right to tell you how to do the things you want to do for him. And we get that. And that's what the law does. The law comes along and gives us some understanding, some instruction. And what the Lord ended up doing is he made it point towards Jesus anyway. So it all comes back to the Lord Jesus Christ. For example, most of the offerings had already been established prior to Moses. Under the law, God gave specific instructions for how he wanted to be worshipped with these offerings. And a lot of the rules and regulations were to make sure you didn't slip into the pagan way of doing things. Let me pause and say this. One of the issues I have tremendously with all the purple lights and the smoke and the, the way a lot of modern worship leaders are dressing is because they're bringing that from the world. Is there anything wrong with a purple light? No, a purple light is a purple light is a purple light. Is there anything wrong with blue jeans? No, blue jeans are just blue jeans are just blue jeans. Or even hairstyle, it changes, it comes and goes. The problem that I see is that if we take praise and worship and we make it look like the bars and the clubs and we're trying to win the lost, then when the lost come in, we're not transporting them into the presence of God. Their heart is instantly going, club. Because that's what you're eliciting, the response. You're, this is what they saw Saturday night, purple lights, weird hair, smoke, 
lasers, and what have you. you. You're eliciting with their heart. It's almost like an old injury that easily goes back to that dislocated place. And the same thing with this. A lot of the laws the Lord gave for, for tithes and offerings was to make sure they didn't elicit pagan responses in, out of their own life. We'll see that here with this law of earth and altars. That's very critical. For, so the first law the Lord gives concerning the worship with offerings, sacrifices, and tithing is the law of earthen altars, which is covered in the book of Exodus, one of the very first things covered after the Ten Commandments. We know from the previous lessons that Noah was the very first person to institute and build an altar. And it was because of Noah's altar that the patriarchs began to build altars. It became a practice. When you want to worship the God, the God of heaven, the God, the God of the galaxies, the real God, you build an altar. It makes it holy ground, and it makes you have to put more effort into your offering. Side note, this is why I don't believe in tithing kiosks. Offerings and tithing should stretch you. It should be inconvenient for you. I am not here to cater to your carnal American flesh. I will never in a million years put a tithing kiosk in the foyer where you can just go by, boop, I got my blessing on. You did jack squat, buddy. We'll use the money and go to Africa with it, but you got nothing out of that. Well, how's any different than that in pumping gas? The, Noah built this altar, and it took time. And you had to arrange the stones, and you had to do it just right. And it, it caused everything to be focused on God. You don't forget what you're doing when you're building an altar because you haven't even begun to make the offering yet. You're just building the altar. Noah instituted this practice of building altars, but God legislated further guidelines to suit his will and prove the people's willingness to obey. So you have what the theologians call the law of earthen altar, and here's the, the five or six points of it. Altars were to be earthen, that is made out of dirt, and made exclusively for the Lord. That's what this, this passage here says. No double usage. Now from that I say, we, we're not having concerts in my church. We, we, this is not a venue that we have church on Sunday and then we have a, you know, something else. I know a lot of churches that are double usage, and I totally disagree with that. That's my conviction. I am an opinionated preacher, so I'm a good one because I have convictions and opinions, and they're all based on the word. If you disagree with me, you better have five verses to back it up. We had one guy come in one time wanting a venue to play his guitar. I said, sir, this is not a venue. This is the house of God. You either lead in worship if I invite you, or you're just going to stand and worship the Lord as we lead you. I don't, I don't get churches that want to have a dual thing. They have a comedy club. There's churches in Florida right now. On Saturday night, their, their church is a club, Christian club. But, you know, you bring in all that carnality, even if it's, you know, Michael W. Smith to a techno beat, then you've got to cleanse the temple to have church Sunday morning. One of the biggest churches in the world, their venue, their, their auditorium seats 5,000, and on Saturday night, they'll have uh, jazz musicians come in, they'll have secular singers come in and sing in their house of God and then they'll have church Sunday morning. I totally disagree with that. I'd stand against it. God said, holy ground is only for me. You double usage, what are you bringing in there and trying to worship God the next day? Number two, burnt offerings and peace offerings were to be sacrificed there at this earthen altar. And we'll cover what burnt offerings and peace offerings represent because we live by those every day here in the, in, the, in the body of Christ, in the church, but we don't realize it. These altars were to be built anywhere God called his name. These would be all over Israel. So there wasn't just one place. You could have one in your backyard. You could have one on your family's estate. It, throughout Israel's history, they built these everywhere, and that was holy ground for them. This is where they went and met with God because it wasn't, they didn't just go to the temple to worship God or to the tabernacle. They could go to their family altar, and that was a holy place where they worshiped the Lord. 
This is instituted in Exodus 20, and it took place all throughout Israel's history. This is where the Lord, this is all taken from these verses, by the way, these points. This is where the Lord would manifest and bless the worshiper. Sure, wherever you call upon his name, there he's going to be. You've built an altar for him to sacrifice a burnt offering or a peace offering. He's going to show up there and bless you. Next point, an altar of stone would be accepted, but only if it was stacked stone and not chiseled. Chiseled stone would employ the skills the Israelites had used to build pagan temples for the Egyptians. That's why he said, you will not lift a chisel to an altar for me, because in doing that, you will defile it. They had just come from building the treasure cities of Egypt and the pyramids and the temples. And so they have pride in their skill set. But every time they lifted a chisel in Egypt, it was for pagans and pagan deity. And God said, I don't want you touching my altar with your pride. So, it, you know, the God of the galaxies wants a dirt altar. Yes, it's better for you that I have a dirt altar. You want just a chintzy old stack stone altar? Yes, it's better for you that I have a stacked stone altar. Because if you lift your hand and pride comes out when you build this altar, I'm not showing up. So he didn't care about their talent. He didn't care about their skill set. He wanted their heart to be pure towards God. So it is a very critical thing how we worship the Lord, how we build things for him. These are all, these are all concepts we get. This is all legalistic. This is all the law, but we understand what the Lord's trying to communicate to us in worshiping him. And finally, the altar was to be low to the ground so that no steps were required to approach it. This was to prevent the worshiper's nakedness from being exposed. You know, they wore those apron kind of things, almost like a dress or a tunic. And if you see them coming out of the Egyptians, you know, they had knee high. If you were, I don't think they made underwear back then. I don't think there was any kind of Egyptian, maybe Egyptian cotton, but they didn't make DVDs out of them. Your nakedness would be exposed if you went up high. And so he said, everybody just stay low. We don't want this to be a flesh fest, which comes back to modern worship, which has become a total flesh fest. Now, I'm not against skinny jeans, except that uh, so much of that is carnal lust. And you got these guys wearing skinny jeans. I understand if you're skinny, all you can buy is skinny jeans. I get that. But like, if it looks like you had to take a high dive to get into them... The problem with high diving into pants, your man, is that you have a frontal package. I don't know any other way to politely say it. And you're going to prance around worshiping the Lord and your stuff is bulging like you're a Bolshevik ballerina in Russia. Those guys had a cod piece, which kind of covered things. It's flesh. It's a flesh fest. It's pride. I don't believe the Lord accepts half of it. Same, I, I expect ladies to dress appropriately because we don't need to see cleavage. We don't need to see curvatures. I'm totally, totally against all this interpretive dancing stuff in the church because they never wear modest apparel. It's always a black unitard. And a girl, a woman who can do ballet in a black unitard, what are the men in the church thinking when they're seeing that? Because it ain't, we're oh, oh to thee, I, my precious Savior. It's, oh, to thee, she's fearfully and wonderfully made. Yeah, flesh. If you disagree with me, give me Bible. Show me where I'm wrong in my disagreement of all of that. When Jesus said, if you cause a baby Christian to stumble, I would that you committed suicide with a millstone. Amen. Amen. Pastor Vanya, Wendell's in heaven. Now, Wendell was about 400 pounds. Pastor Vanya used to say they would never put Wendell on the dance team. Because nobody would want to see a 400-pound man in a unitard. 
You never see healthy, big bone women on those dance squads. So who's in charge of that? And why are they prancing that in front of our men? When every man has to deal with his eyes. These laws were given to teach the holiness and sanctity of the location where offerings were to be given. Man, we need more of that. Holiness and sanctification. The house of God should be holy. The place of worship should be holy. God wants offerings to be a holy and sacred thing. And that's the purpose behind all this. God wants his worship to be holy and sacred, not profane, not common, not something we do seven days a week to everything under the, under the stars, but something we give to God alone. Moses was the first to build an altar under the new laws at the base of Mount Sinai. There he offered burnt offerings and peace offerings in order to ratify what was called the old covenant, God's covenant with Israel. All of this was set up from the beginning to teach God's people not to be common and pagan like the Egyptians who had a myriad of gods, but you're going to worship the one true God and he wants things done a certain way. And if you can do it just any old way you want to, it's not to God. That's where the church is failing now. We're just worshiping God any old way the world has taught us to. Any old way country music has taught us to. Any old way video music awards has taught us to. Any old way Christian music industry has taught us to. Most of what's coming out of Nashville in the Christian music industry ain't worth listening to. It needs to be flushed. Uh, there's so much homosexuality in the Christian music industry coming out of Nashville. So much, it's, just, it's just corrupt because the devil's infiltrating everything and the church is so ignorant and lacks so much discernment. We don't even want holiness because holiness is hard on flesh. And if the one thing the American Christian loves is comfort and a flesh fast, maybe not you or me, but I pastor and I travel this country and I know the quality of sheep in this nation and it's pretty low. We're trying to be better for the glory of God, not for pride's sake, but because our God deserves it. So the five prescribed offerings of the Old Testament, we're not going to read everything in this passage that I've written. It's too much. It just, I'm still, somebody said, uh, what, what's your weakest subject in the Bible, Pastor Chris? I said Levitical priesthood because there's so much minutia there. And so after studying all this, what's your weakest subject? The Levitical priesthood because there's so much minutia there. And I, I don't, I just, I, I haven't unlocked all of it in my understanding yet. So we're not going to go through everything that I've written, but just the high points. There are five main offerings under the Mosaic Law. And you'll, you'll recognize these names because you're Bible students. The sixth offering uh, we list in this list is an offering that accompanied the other five. That's the libation offering, the water offering, the drink offering. Not all of these offerings were meant to atone for sin. So you have to keep that in mind. These were just ways to worship the Lord. So the question would arise, why are they animals? Well, when you come out of Egypt and you are a nomad, you don't, and you're not permitted to fellowship with anybody... All you have is the livestock you can keep reproducing. That is the source of your income and your economy. So you're 40 years in the wilderness. You're not permitted to interact with anybody because that's one of your strict rules because he doesn't want you to become pagan again. All you have as an economy is the wealth you brought out, which is going towards the tabernacle, and the animals that keep reproducing because that's what animals do. Therefore, the offerings you have readily to give are animal offerings on a regular basis. That's your source of wealth. If you lived in Hawaii a thousand years ago, it might be shells the Lord would have commanded a shell offering. I want a conch shell. I want a puka shell. I want a mullock shell. Whatever your shell economy was, because the Polynesians used to have money based on um, seashells. That was kind of their currency. I guess, you know, you could go rob the ocean and make more money. I don't know. <laughs> Not all of these offerings were meant to atone for sin. Some of them were given as a pure act of worship. 
just because you wanted to worship the Lord. They, the, one of the terms for that was a free will offering. That just meant you didn't need to give it, you just wanted to give it. Some of these things were required. You broke a law or something was discovered, you had to give it. But there was nothing to say you couldn't just go give a burnt offering just because you woke up that morning and you just loved God so much, I gotta do something for him. Some were given as a pure act of worship, others are given to get the Lord's attention. That's critical. That's something we haven't really touched upon much in the modern churches. You can give an offering to get God's attention. You see that over and over again in the Old Testament, but we've never really covered that much in the New Testament, though it's a pattern that holds true. Sometimes you can give an offering, you can sacrifice something unto the Lord to get his attention. They call it calling upon the name of the Lord. We know that. Call upon the name of the Lord. We think we can just do that with our mouth, but you can live a life that gets God's attention. You can give an offering that gets God's attention like the widow's might. That thing got the Lord's attention. And we still talk about it to this day as we are right now. Some things were given just to get the Lord's attention, a way to call upon his name. With the exception of the sin and trespass offering, all of these offerings were instituted before Moses and the law because without the law, sin is not imputed. So we've got five main offerings. Three of them were instituted before the law. The two that were not, actually four, the libation offering. The two that were not before the law were the sin offering and the trespass offering, and that is because before the law, there's no sin. There's sin in the world, but it's not imputed. All right, we understand that spiritual law. That's in Romans chapter 4 and Romans chapter 5. Sin is in the earth since the days of Adam, but until a law is given, God's not counting. He's not, Cain was a, was a murderer, but the Lord didn't kill Cain. He didn't have anybody kill Cain. He put a mark on Cain so nobody would kill Cain. Though he was a murderer, but under the law, he would have been stoned. So we know uh, Romans says that without the law, sin is not imputed. It's not reckoned to anybody's account. So if sin is not being reckoned, you don't need to atone for it. You don't need a sin offering or a trespass offering to cover for it. That's why all these other offerings were before the law, these are two new ones because now we can break a law and in breaking a law, we have to atone for it. You follow all that? I think, I, think we, I think we got that. All right, so the first offering is a burnt offering. And this, of course, was, was uh, developed way before Moses and the law. And this could be a bull, a ram, or a bird, or a dove or young pigeon for the poor. Now, as the name implies, you totally burn this thing up. Under the Levitical law, it was prepared a certain way, blood was sprinkled a certain way. But the whole purpose behind this is you burn this thing. There's nothing left. And the purpose of it is what we need to catch as, as New Testament Christians. It's a voluntary act of worship, an atonement for an unintentional sin in general. You just feel bad, and so you want to go offer something. It's an expression of devotion, commitment, and complete to surrender to God. What the burnt offering represents to us, or even back then, it represented total devotion to God, like a prayer of rededication. Jesus Christ prayed the prayer of consecration in the garden, not my will, but your will be done. This would have been demonstrated in the Old Testament by a burnt sacrifice. It was one of the laws under Leviticus chapter 1 was you laid your hand on the animal not to transmit sin as they did with the scapegoat, which some of you are familiar with, but just so you could look at that animal face to face and realize you're about to die for me to represent to the Lord my life for him. The burnt offering is you on the, sac on the altar saying, Lord, everything I am for you. I give you my life again. You, you could do one of these a day if you wanted to, just to live a consecrated life under the old covenant. And it should cost you something. 
That's why in the New Testament, when we live a consecrated life, it costs us something. It costs us friends, costs us hobbies, costs us money, costs us fun time. You know, how, you, know you want to go do something fun, but the Lord says, I need you to pray. That's a burnt offering. And it was an offering done unto the Lord to symbolize how much you're committed to him. We still live that heart today. We don't burn an animal on an altar, but sometimes our life burns. Paul said, though I give my life to be burnt, he was speaking figuratively and literally because he could have been martyred by being burned alive. But we should all live our, give our lives to be burnt unto the Lord so there's nothing left of our own selfishness. Anyway, I won't go with the rest of, it, the rest of those points there. You can study on your own. The second law, or excuse me, the second offering was a grain or meal offering. King James calls it a meat offering, though there's no animal muscle involved. King James' word meat is just anything that has to be chewed. We think of meat as steak, fish, chicken, pork, anything that has protein muscle. But King James, anything that must be chewed is meat. So that's why it's a grain or a meal offering. This was an offering of grain, fine flour, olive oil, incense, baked bread, and salt. And they called that the salt of the covenant. We're to be salt and light in the New Testament because of the preserving uh, factor. The purpose was, this is a voluntary act of worship. This is something you'd give just as an offering. Again, you don't have money in the wilderness. And they don't necessarily need money in the wilderness because we're not interchanging with local economies. But you can give something to the priest that he can live off of. And you can give something as unto the Lord. It's a voluntary act of worship, a recognition of God's goodness and provisions, a devotion to God. Sounds like a good reason to give money today. We just thank God for his goodness. Lord, you've been so good to me. Here's $5. Lord, that missionary I heard was so inspiring. I, they just blessed me. I want to give into their mission. That's a grain offering. That's, that's, a, that's a, a flower offering. It's something you can give to the Lord as a devotion and as a voluntary act of worship. This has nothing to do with sin. The burnt offering really has nothing to do with sin. So again, part of the Bible is understanding the offerings because if you read the Bible, you cover this over and over again. It'd be nice to know what in the world they're talking about rather than just ignorantly skimming over it like, yeah, I got what I just read when you didn't. We've all done that. All right. A meat offering or a grain offering. And what happened is it was cakes or wafers. You baked this thing. It took some time to prepare this offering. You didn't just go throw a bag of flour on the altar you had to bake something with it. This, all this speaks to the fact that offerings should cost us something. Heart should be involved. It's some preparation. Guys aren't good at it, but girls, when they give gifts to each other, they love to wrap it up. I mean, half the excitement is going and picking it out, then bringing it home and buying a new little baggie or wrapping it and then putting, and you can't just tie it with ribbon. You got to get the, the scissors out and curl the ribbons and you got to have 15 or 16 curled tails on either side of that little bow. And, and then it goes in the bag that has all the wrapping paper in it and then perfect little thing. And I'm just so excited to come, you know, and guys, we'll wrap it in aluminum foil and chuck it to you. You know, that's right. Or it just comes in the Walmart bag I bought it in. Love you, bro. And that's it. You know, women will spend 30 minutes to an hour wrapping it. And, and then the women will open it and go, oh, it's so beautiful. And, and the women, they'll unwrap it with a pocket knife very nicely. And they'll unfold the tissue to be folded aside and recycled later and save the ribbon. Because that meant just as much as whatever's in here. And Women get this. Guys are like, here you go, Lord. Here's a check for $100. And it's hurting us, men is really hurting us. We've got to learn how to slow down and put our heart into this for God. That's what these offerings are teaching us over and over and over again. Build the altar. 
Put your heart into this thing that you're about to give. That's why we line you guys up on Sunday mornings and Sunday nights so that you have time as you come down to place your offering in the basket to, to make this different than just a kiosk swipe. Amen. So cakes or wafers, no yeast or honey because there should be nothing sweet about this. This, this is, I'm, I'm excited about God. I want to worship him. This is a serious moment. And it's presented to God. It's accompanied the burnt offering and the peace offering along with the drink offering. So the grain offering could be alone or it accompanied the other offerings as well. So the third one is the peace or fellowship offering. I like that NIV calls it the fellowship offering because this was basically an offering that was a meal presented to the Lord. An animal, a variety of breads. Uh, and then this was coupled together with the drink offering, which we'll cover here, and the cakes or the wafers. And so what it represented was a meal that you presented to the Lord. And it was symbolic of fellowship. The critical thing behind this is that this was usually the third offering in a series of three. First, the sin offering, because you did bad. Then the burnt offering to say, Lord, I rededicate my life. And now the meal offering, Lord, do you accept the previous two? And under the law, you presented this meal. Gideon is the best example of this. You presented this meal to the Lord. If he accepted it, supernatural fire would consume this meal and you would know you were right with God. But we have, a, we have a shadow of this in the New Testament called communion where we sit down with the bread and the wine and it represents, or bread and grape juice, it represents fellowship with the Lord. It's a meal. This is a fellowship offering given and it's a voluntary act of worship. You could do this anytime you wanted to. You could present it to the Lord anytime you wanted to. It was a represented thanksgiving and fellowship. It was a communal meal. It included vow offerings, thanksgiving offerings and free will offerings and it confirmed right standing with God. We do this too. We fellowship with the Lord. We don't have to give an offering of a kid of the goats or of a libation offering poured out. We can just fellowship with the Lord and his presence will come upon us. A Holy Ghost fire, the Spirit of God will come upon us if we're in right standing with him. If you're not in right standing with God and you try to press into him, he will resist you and you'll feel miserable. We have it. It's called conviction. Amen. Brings us to the fourth offering. And again, we're covering the offerings of the Old Testament. This is the sin offering. This is the one we're probably all familiar with. And again, these are all offerings the Lord commands us under the Old Testament to give, but they were representative of something he was trying to accomplish. The, all these offerings cost us something. All of these offerings should challenge us. All of these offerings, even in the New Testament, whether it's money or what have you, they should really push us so that we are mindful of what we're doing with and for the Lord. Sin offering. Young bull, if you're a high priest, for the whole congregation. Male goat for the leader, female goat and lamb for the common person, dove or pigeon for the poor, or a tenth of ephah of fine flour for the very poor. Notice the Lord breaks down what it costs you depending on your wealth and society. And, and yet, he wants you to do something. Everybody's able to do something. Even the poorest are required to give something to the Lord. Even the poorest are required to demonstrate a devotion to God and a sacrifice. We understand the purpose of the sin offering. That's the one we're most familiar with. A mandatory atonement for specific unintentional sin, confession of sin, forgiveness of sin, cleansing from defilement. This happened once a year, but it could also, with the day of atonement, but this could also happen on a regular basis when you realize you had done something really, really dumb and egregious. We call it confessing our sin now. Do you know it takes a, a sacrifice to say, Lord, forgive me? Some Christians have so much trouble getting forgiveness. It takes all the faith they have in the world to say, Lord, forgive me. And what if you sinned against somebody and you need to go repent to them or confess your fault one to another? I'd rather go sacrifice a bull than do that sometimes. I'm sure some of you, I don't want to tell my wife I messed up. I don't want to tell my 
coworker. Or, it's pride. It gets in the way. Real quick, trespass offering, then we're going to do the drink offering. Then I want to move on to these minor or these significant, I don't say minor, significant offerings of the Old Testament that are outside these prescriptions. Trespass offering, this is a little different than the sin offering. This is the man, you have to offer a ram. This is the prescription. Mandatory atonement for an unintentional sin requiring restitution. So you didn't mean to do it, but you found out you did it and it's wrong. And now you got to pay restitution. The prescription is a ram. But again, it costs you something plus 20%. So you killed something or you stole something or a business deal went bad. You had to offer a ram to atone and then 20%. I want you to see over and over again, because again, this is Levitical stuff. Your heads are spinning. You're like, blah, blah, blah. We have the new covenant. Please don't take the flippant heart that says blah, blah, blah. All this points towards Jesus Christ. If we can't see it, it's not God's fault. That's why we study this stuff. But you know, most modern Christians, they're in their Bible 15 minutes a day at best. You know, back 150 years ago, before we had a lot of books to read, before we had Facebook to waste our life on, Instagram to waste our life on, people read the Bible every day. And when they wrote letters to each other, they would quote scriptures. And, and they would relate to everything they experienced in life back to the Word of God. Honey, I'm out of town on business, and I had the most wonderful thing happen today. It was just like Jephthah. And the modern church says, well, who's that? Is that a character on The Simpsons? No, Jephthah. You know how he made a rash vow to the Lord. Everything was tied back to the Word. Every, every dialogue was around the Scriptures because it's the book everybody had to read. Now, most New Testament, church-age, modern Christians, they don't even know the Bible. It really is a bad testimony when we have just as many hours as they did 150 years ago. But so many distractions, and we wonder why we go nowhere for God. You can go nowhere without his word. So I, I, we have to blow through this because I know I will lose your interest because it's a little heady and a little technical, and we're trying to find the big picture behind tithes and offerings. If you can see nothing else, see that when you give an offering to the Lord, you should feel it, and it should cost you, and you should do it because you're thankful. And the more thankful you are, the more you will give an offering to the Lord. And we, we started all this teaching two weeks ago by saying, God needs nothing we have. Nothing. He created it all. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He owns the hills. He owns the silver and gold under the hills. He owns the world the hill is on. What he wants is our heart, and these offerings demonstrate how much of our heart he has. So the trespass offering is when you figure out you've done something and you have to give a restitution. And then the sixth one, the drink or libation offering, that is a, a liquid, an oil, water, wine, or strong drink that is poured out. The purpose is that it costs you something. Wine is expensive, oil is expensive, strong drink is expensive, and you pour it out onto the altar or into the dirt, and, and nobody gets it. But then again, when you burn a ram, nobody gets it, but God sees it and receives it as worship. The purpose was this accompanies the burnt offering and the peace offering, and the description is the third part of a hen, or for the Feast of Pentecost, the fourth part of a hen, which is a measurement. It does not, has nothing to do with the chicken with feathers that lays eggs. It's a different kind of hen third part of a hen it was this like a are we talking malt liquor and chicken wings now no that's called sin uh, we're talking about pouring out a measurement as prescribed by the lord and the third part of a hen in the measurement all right so all that aside those are the prescribed offerings of the levitical priesthood four out of those six existed before the law the burnt offering existed the peace offering existed the libation offering existed the grain or meal offering existed. So when the Lord comes along and establishes the law, 
he adds guidelines. And he says, if you're going to do it, this is how I want it done. Other significant Old Testament offerings. We want to cover these because not every offering in the Old Testament fit the prescription that the Mosaic Law gave. And this shows us that you're not just limited to what God says. You're not just limited to giving money. You're not just limited to giving time. Other, there's other things you can do to give an offering to the Lord. An offering is something we give because we love. And the more you love, the more it's going to touch your life, and the more you're going to want to give your very best. I heard the horrific testimony one time, horrific because it was so pagan and, and horrible. A missionary, told, a missionary to India told the story about a woman going to the temple with her two daughters, and one daughter was healthy and the other daughter was crippled. And she came back from the temple with the, with the crippled daughter. And the missionary said, where, what happened to your, your, where was your other daughter? She said, we sacrificed her to the gods. Said, you sacrificed your, your healthy daughter to the gods? Yes, that's what you do. Oh, no offense, but why wouldn't you sacrifice your crippled daughter? He said, well, because the gods deserve the best. Isn't it disgusting and pathetic? Pagans get it. But modern American Christians serving the true and living God who died and went to hell and saved us, we don't get it. That a Hindu would sacrifice to the demon gods the best child because the gods deserve the best. And we as modern American Christians give God our dregs, our second class, our third class, our fourth class, if anything at all. It's a shame that they get it and we who are truly born again, who know God, who have eternal life, we still don't get it. May we get it. Some of us get it, but generally speaking, I don't think the American church gets it. One of the lessons, uh, one of the things I just posted on Facebook, the gross income of born-again evangelical Christians in America in 2010 was $2.25 trillion in America. Evangelical Christian income in 2010 was $2.25 trillion. The tithe on that is $225 billion. Has the church in America seen a $225 billion tithe? What about for the last six years combined? Now you're at $1.2 trillion tithe. You could win the world 10 times over with $1.25 trillion in tithe. How much of it did the church give in the last six years? Less than 4%. So I don't think the evangelical church in America gets it. We're too busy wearing skinny jeans, moshing in the altar of God, the purple lights and smoke, thinking God accepts it. And it doesn't. That's why we go nowhere for God. And that's why there will be a great falling away where many Christians will curse God and go to hell. Born again, spirit filled will curse God and go to hell because they don't get it. So let's look at these significant Old Testament offerings. In addition to the prescribed offerings above, God's people also gave in many diverse ways as acts of gratitude, worship, and to help establish God's covenant. So I'm not going to read everything I've written for time's sake. But one of the, and these aren't all of them in the Old Testament, but there's some significant offerings here. Israel gave a willing offering for the building of the tabernacle. That was in Exodus. God gave Moses the blueprint for the tabernacle worship system. And the Bible says they gave a free will, as many as whose heart and spirit stirred them up. And they gave, and they gave all sorts of things, badgers skin, dolphin skin, because the covering for the Ark of the Covenant was made out of dolphin skin. How in the world they came up with that in the middle of the wilderness? I don't know. Dolphin skin. Porpoise skin. As I jokingly say, you know, Flipper, would you like to give your life for the gospel? Uh -uh. <laughs> they clubbed them anyway. They skinned them alive and they made a covering for the Ark of the Covenant. It's in the book of the Old Testament. You'll see that the covering for the Ark of the Covenant and transport was made out of dolphin skin. Go save the planet if you want to. God doesn't care. He's going to burn it anyway. 
badger skins, gemstones, gold, silver, shittim wood, uh, all sorts of fabrics they gave. That was offerings above the five prescribed offerings. Then you have Jephthah's daughter. This is one I have no doctrinal interpretation for. He's mentioned in the book of uh, Hebrews 11 in the Hall of Faith. Jephthah was one of the judges. He was a prostitute's daughter. His kinsfolk rejected him because he was the daughter of a harlot. And yet he was the one the Spirit of God came upon to deliver Israel from, I believe, the Ammonites. Yeah. And he made a vow. He, he, all of the, Lord, the Lord brought all of Israel together under him. And right before he went out to war, he said, Lord, if you will grant me total victory over the Ammonites, then when I come home, the first thing that comes through my door, I will offer to you as a burnt offering. That's a rash vow. We've all made them. We hardly keep them. And so total victory. This man who was an, a reject to his tribe, total victory, becomes a national hero, comes home, and who's the first one to come out of his door but his only child, his daughter, a grown woman. And he says, woman, daughter, why have you done this? You have become the daughter of my sorrow. You have become my greatest burden. I have made a vow to the Lord, and I cannot go back. And she said, father, don't go back. You made a promise to the Lord. Let me go do this. Let me go wail my virginity in the wilderness. And I think she went for two months, maybe four. She and her friends went up to the wilderness and they bewailed her virginity that she would never marry, never have children. And she came back. She submitted to her father and he sacrificed her to the Lord. Only example of it in the Bible. We don't make a doctrine out of it, but talk about an offering. Now, the Lord is asking us to do the same thing with our kids, except they don't have to die. They just have to go live for Christ. Amen. The story about the missionary to India, it's what convicted her to be a missionary that if the Hindu could give their best to the Lord, why can't I give mine to the Lord? And every one of you have children that are to be given to the Lord. Thank God we don't have to sacrifice them, kill them, and burn them. We just let them live for Jesus Christ. You're raising your children to serve God better than you. Amen. Hannah's offering. Hannah was uh, barren. She was one of two wives to Elkanah. And she sought the Lord and sought the Lord and sought the Lord. And the high priest Eli saw her in the temple and rebuked her because he thought she was drunk. It's amazing how many folks go to church drunk. Uh, apparently the high priest had come to expect it. Yeah, I guess the church is the best place for a drunk to be. But once you find Jesus, don't come back drunk unless it's the Holy Ghost. And so uh, she gets her request. She has a son named Samuel. And one of the things she says is she brings Samuel back after she weans him. He's probably three or four years old. They, they breastfed a lot longer in those times, maybe five or six, and presents him to the house. And this is what she says. Therefore, I have also returned him to the Lord, he whom I have obtained by petition. As long as he lives, he whom I have obtained by petition shall be returned to the Lord. Hannah's offering was her firstborn son. Now, he didn't die. He became the great prophet Samuel. And the Bible says, and when she left him there, Samuel began to worship the Lord. I mean, a child four or five years old, he became the boy prophet. And none of his words ever fell to the ground. Here's another example of us giving our children to the Lord as an offering. That's hard when you let your child grow up to be your best friend, which is not proper or biblical. Your child's not supposed to be your best friend. That's perverse. Your child's supposed to be your child. You're supposed to be their parent. Otherwise, the sin of familiarity sets in and things get weird and your children end up running the show. All right, that one fell on uh, deaf ears, I suppose. Maybe some of you are guilty of being best friends with your kids. There's something wrong when the federal government puts a billboard up and says children need parents. How come the federal government has to teach us that and the church doesn't get it already? P children don't need best friends. 
in their parents. They need parents. If they're your best friend, you'll let them talk to you any way they want to, and you won't feel free to correct them because you don't correct your friends. David's offering for the ark's return. We know the story. David tries to bring it up on a new cart, just like the Philistines sent it away. And uh, they get a little bit of distance coming up from Kerjath Jerim. Uzzah puts his hand forth. The Lord strikes him dead. David freaks out. They leave it at Obed Edom's house, which is in Gibeah, not far from Kerjath Jerim. Kerjath Jerim being about eight miles from Jerusalem. They go back. They spend three months studying from the book of Leviticus how to do this. And they realize it's going to take work. Well, God forbid worshiping the Lord take work. Why can't we just copy the world like the church does and have purple hair and purple lights and smoke machines and skinny jeans and little tattoos on our wrists here with the Jesus fish and that way when I lift my hands at the microphone, everybody can see how carnal I am. <laughs> God forbid it take work. The Ark of the Covenant weighs nearly a ton. Put on four men's shoulders. That's 500 pounds a shoulder. It's gonna take work and God's help. And David does it, and they can only go six paces. They have to set the ark down, and they sacrifice oxen and fatlings. Six paces. I did the math. 18 feet for 42,000 feet means they stopped 2,300 times and sacrificed oxen and fatlings 2,300 times from Obed-Edom's house to Shiloh, where the Lord put the ark back in the tabernacle. That was a little expensive endeavor. How much does just 2,300 oxen cost? much less oxen, plural, and fatlings, plural, 2,300 times. David's water offering, we're all familiar with this one. There in the time of war, Philistines, the garrison of the Philistines guard in Bethlehem. David's laid up in the cave of Dulam. He misses hometown water. He requests it. Three men break through the garrison of the Philistines, get the water out of the well. No easy endeavor, break through back, bring it to David. David can't drink it because it's the price of his best men's lives. So what does he do? Right there in front of all of them, he just pours it out. And it's an offering, a libation offering, which was prescribed under the law, which Jacob initiated at Jacob's ladder. He poured the oil as a libation offering over the pillars he had erected. David's temple offering. David was not permitted by God to build the great temple that became known as Solomon's temple. So he spent the rest of his life preparing in abundance for the temple. The Lord did give David the blueprint of the tabernacle and... He gave that to Solomon. And so the rest of his life, he spent preparing iron and brass in abundance, gold, silver, wood, and gemstones. And because he said, I have set my affection on the house of my God, out of his personal finances, David gave $3.75 billion in personal gold and $169 million in personal silver. And he said, my gold's going to house the inside of the Holy of Holies. I did the math recently to figure out the estimation of the value based on modern 2016 gold standards. 3.75 billion out of his own personal bank account. But when you're old, what else do you have to do? That's David's offering for the tabernacle. A ravenous threshing floor, David is being judged for the census. He, he numbered the people against God's will and the Lord brought judgment and it stopped at Aravna's threshing floor where this Jebusite, who's not a Jew, he's not in there, he's a Jebusite, he is threshing wheat, and David says, I'm going to buy that piece of property. I'm going to erect an altar there, and actually where Solomon's temple was built, it actually becomes where the Holy of Holies is. And Aravna says, take it, my Lord. Here, here's the oxen uh, for, for burnt offerings. Here's the implements of, of threshing and plow for, for the sacrifice. And David says this. He says, I will not offer anything to the Lord that has cost me nothing. That's critical when it comes to offerings. No, I insist on buying it from you. I will not offer to the Lord, my God, burnt offerings 
or sacrifices that cost me nothing. And he paid 50 shekels of silver for the threshing floor. Threshing floor is not a big area. I mean, you're, you're talking about the, the, the footprint of a silo. It's not large at all. 50 shekels of silver for that. A widow's cake offering. The Lord com commanded a widow ready to die to provide an offering for the prophet Elijah. The impossible offering stretched her faith and provided supernatural provision until rain returned upon the earth. She had to stretch her faith, provide for a preacher first, and because she took care of the preacher first, her things lasted longer and longer. A full year, in fact, the Bible says. Many days, King James says. Hebrew relates that it's a full year before the rains came. Then the Shunammite builds a room. There's an offering. You ever thought about that? Building a room for somebody to stay in. Elisha the prophet would travel through this town a lot, Shunem, and she, she wanted the man of God to stay with her, so she was a wealthy man. The Bible says a great woman, so had a lot of wealth, talked her husband into building a room, putting a, a bed in there and a desk and a candle and a chair so the prophet would have a free place to stay, and that became an offering that blessed this ministry. And so out of thankfulness, the, uh, the prophet says, what do you want? She says, I want a son. So she has a son, boy's about 14, 15 years old. The man of God's still coming through on a regular basis. He's a family friend by now. The boy dies, and she says, why have you done this to me? And uh, what happens is the prophet raises the boy from the dead, and does anybody know where the prophet raises the boy from the dead at? In his room, his prophet's chamber, on the bed that the woman provided. It's an offering. It comes back to bless the Shunammite woman. And let's see. All right, we've burned through this quickly. This is a lengthy lesson. These offerings built the houses of worship helped the men of God, demonstrated thanksgiving, and they got God's attention. May these offerings teach us how we are to give to the Lord, I might add, in the New Testament. So, again, this was a little bit of a heady topic looking at the uh, five Levitical offerings. Well, what we need to be taking away from these Sunday schools are the heart of giving offerings to the Lord, the heart of tithing to the Lord. What is the Lord expecting out of us? Well, obviously, we don't give animals anymore, though some folks still do tithe animals. So the Scudders got chickens in Africa not too long ago, and they were excited till the neighbor dog ate one of their offerings. And Lester Sumrall, during the Great Depression, they had no money to give, so he built a pen by every church he preached at and said, you don't have any money, but all you got chickens, eggs, and piglets. You just bring that, that's my offering. And he said he would have a whole pen beside the church in 1935, 38, full of livestock. He'd take it to market, sell it. And he said before long, he was the only person in town with a new car because he had converted their livestock to the finances he needed to get to the next meeting. So offerings are things that cost you, that you say, Lord, I'm so thankful for what you've done for me. Here's, this is the least I can do for you. Amen. We're, we've gone over. Father, we thank you for Sunday school. I ask that you help our understanding. I ask that you help our heart in understanding how to worship you with tithes and offerings, with the substance of our life that you've blessed us with. We will not take for granted you allow us to live in the richest nation on the planet, the richest nation known to human history. We thank you, Lord, for allowing us to get wealth, that you might establish your covenant, that we might fund the gospel, and that we would glorify your name. Bless all these here this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.